Take your Bibles, please, and turn uh, in the New Testament to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. When you found Luke chapter 2, I'm going to ask you to stand so we can hear, read together the Word of the Living God. And this is the Word of the Lord. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, to the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Let's pray together. Father, we ask now that you, once again, would add your blessing to this reading and hearing of your word, the things, uh, truth in your word uh, for us to hear truth to transform our lives. And so we pray, Spirit of God, that you would reveal that truth to us and that by your power you would bring that transformation to us. We pray these things with great hope and anticipation for what you will do in us and through us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Last week, we began to ponder some of the elements of the Christmas story that we read here in Luke chapter 2. We pondered what could they mean? What might they reveal about the character of God? What message might God be communicating to us through these various elements of the Christmas story? This morning, I want us to continue that pondering. To keep thinking about the character of God... To keep thinking about the message that he might be speaking to us through the reality that in Bethlehem there was no room for Mary and Joseph. So I wonder how many doors Joseph and Mary knocked on in Bethlehem looking for a place to stay. Maybe one, maybe five, maybe ten. Maybe they knocked on every door in the village of Bethlehem. I I don't know. I wonder how many of those homes belonged to a relative of Joseph or Mary, because this was, in a sense, hometown for their family. Maybe they had many relatives there. Maybe they had none. Why was there no Jewish grandmother to take pity on them and give up her space? Why was there no mother there with a daughter the same age as Mary? who took them in and would help Mary deliver this baby since Mary had no mother of her own with her? Why was there no strong, burly man who said, you know what, I'm big, I'm tough. I'll go out in the elements. You take my place here. I don't know. But all I know is that Mary and Joseph were left with the end. The last choice, the least choice for any young woman who was about to deliver a baby. The kind of inn that they was before them was not like a hotel or or a bed and breakfast, not at all. And contrary to the Hallmark cards and the cartoons you've seen at Christmas, there was no innkeeper 
at this kind of an inn. It was only an enclosure with a roof over it. There were recesses that were paved and just a little bit above the ground. That's where people could sleep. That's it. The barest protection from the elements. These inns were free. You just went in and stayed there. If you wanted food for your animal, that would cost you a little bit. Kind of like a rest stop for you and me as we travel along the highway. Because Bethlehem is only six miles from Jerusalem, it's probable that this inn was a large inn. And it was often crowded with travelers on their way to Jerusalem. It was the place for the poorest of travelers. And even in this place, this crowded place for the poorest of travelers, no one would give up their space for Joseph and Mary. You know, it was common then for a stable to be attached to an inn like this. And most of those stables were nothing but a cave, a limestone cave. And tradition says that a cave of limestone was attached to this inn in Bethlehem. So this is the place, not the inn, but the stable. The only place where Mary and Joseph could have Jesus because there was no room. Now listen, we don't need to worry about Jesus in in all of this. The degree of difference between a mansion and a manger is negligible, really, to the one who has just left the beauty and the brilliance of heaven. You know, one place on this sin-marked, sin-disfigured world is really not that much better than another place for a heaven dweller. But to us earthlings, those of us who live here, the difference is enormous, isn't it? Between a manger and a mansion. And this message is for us. To those of us that mansions and mangers matter to, and and that's the point. To all of us to whom it matters, what is God trying to communicate by closing every single door to Joseph and Mary except the door to the stable? How could it be? That there was not one single heart of compassion in the entire village of Bethlehem. How could hearts be so selfish that no one would put the needs of this desperate couple above their own needs? It doesn't seem reasonable to me. And maybe that's the answer. This story is beyond reason. And perhaps God has intervened here to cause something so completely unreasonable because there's a message here that he wants us to get. There's a message in no room. How much of this is God's doing? You know, in Exodus chapter 4, the Lord says to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the miracles which I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. I will harden his heart. That's what the Lord says. Exodus 9.12 And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not listen to them, just as the Lord had spoken to Moses. Deuteronomy chapter 2, verse 30, we read of Sihon, king of Heshbon. And we read there that the Lord hardened his spirit and made his heart obstinate in order to deliver the king into the hands of his people the Lord's work. Listen, when it comes to the human heart, that's your heart and mine, the raw material with which God has to work is pride and selfishness. We're all proud. And self is the default setting for all of us. That's just the truth. Self is the default setting for all of us. 
many people rise above selfishness beautifully and often. They do think of others first, but it has to be a conscious act of the will for any of us to overcome this inclination of me first. And so perhaps God was at work here in the hearts of the people of Jerusalem, not allowing them to rise above their selfishness and the desire to serve themselves. I'm not sure how else you could look at a nine months pregnant girl who had no mother, no sister with her, and no place to go and tell her, sorry, no room here. So I think as always, God's sovereignty and human responsibility have this mysterious interplay because for as often as Scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, Scripture also says that Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Working together, I don't know. But I do know this, the situation could have been otherwise. The story could have been told differently. For instance, on Tuesday this past week, Southwest Airlines Flight 623 bound for Phoenix, was diverted shortly after takeoff from San Francisco when a pregnant passenger on board went into labor. Captain John Gordy contacted air traffic control and said he needed to make an emergency landing, and he said it was like Moses parting the waters. They got all the traffic out of the way. But before the plane could make the emergency landing, the baby came. And it was delivered by a doctor and a nurse who were on board. It was amazing, said flight attendant Carrie Robinson. All the passengers were awesome. Everybody was clapping. No one freaked out. No, it was all very calm, said passenger Eli Alexander. It was really amazing how calm it was and how many people came to help. When the plane landed, a team of medics met the plane in Los Angeles. Now look. It could have been the same way for the birth of Jesus. He could have just come suddenly. And maybe the closest place that Joseph and Mary could get to was that inn where they could have been welcomed in and everybody would have worked together as a team to help this young couple deliver this baby that was on the the way. And all the messages that we looked at last week would still be the same. Still born in Bethlehem, the least of the tribes of Judah. Still born in the inn, the stable, the least place. It could have been that way. Jesus could have still been accessible to all. But the people on the plane reacted much differently than the people in Bethlehem. And God in his sovereignty used sinful, selfish people to reject and turn Mary and Joseph away. For some reason, God wanted it to be no room. God could have determined that Jesus be born in an open field on a crisp, clear night under a cloudless sky with that bright and beautiful and wonderful star shining down on Mary and Joseph. That would be almost romantic, wouldn't it? Dreamy, clean, fresh, pure. But no, God wanted to send another message. Why? What might God be communicating? Well, maybe it's God's picture to help us, you, and me, know when Christ is truly formed in us. Now we're talking about delivery and and giving birth. Paul makes a very unsettling statement to the Christians in Galatia. He writes to them in chapter 4, My dear children, 
for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you, how I wish I could be with you. Now here's what's unsettling. The Galatians to whom Paul writes were believers. Paul had already gone through the labor pains with them. He went to their city. He preached the gospel. They believed the gospel. They turned to faith in Christ. Christ was born in them. They were born again in Christ. A church was established. The problem is that now there's not very much evidence of that new life, that Christ life within the Galatians. It's almost as if Christ in them is still an embryonic stage. And so Paul writes that he's suffering the pain of childbirth again. Until what? Until Christ is formed in these people. Their lives do not yet look like the life of Christ, like the one who indwells them. And maybe that's something else for us to ponder here this morning. Why is it that Jesus came to earth as a baby and not as a a completely grown man? Maybe it's so we can see the whole process. Look at verse 52 in Luke chapter 2 before you. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. Jesus didn't stay an infant. Scripture says so. And maybe it's to say, tell, tell us that neither should we. We should be constantly growing in Christ. That's the goal of every believer for you and for me. It's Christ likeness. And second Corinthians tells us that we turn to faith in Christ. God removes that veil. So we can see the glory of Christ. 33 years of a glory life. We can observe. There's something transformative about that life. And so here in Luke's story, we have the final moments, the last seconds before that life begins. And what do we read? No room. There must be something transformative for us about that fact of Jesus' life. Something about it will help Christ to be formed in you and in me. What is it? Well, my mind goes immediately to Isaiah 53. We read it this morning. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him. No beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. No room. John 1, nine, The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. No room. Perhaps this is what's required when Christ is fully formed in us. Rejection. No room. We never like to hear the words I'm about to read. I never like to hear these words. I never like to read these words. And that's because I'm always trying to think of reasons why these words I'm going to read don't apply to me, don't apply to us. Because if they apply to us, then we have to do something about this idyllic American Christianity of ours that's comfortable. We're here in the South. We're accepted by all. But the one for whom there was no room said this. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. The one for whom there was no room said 
Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. The one for whom there was no room said, If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I've chosen you out of the world. That's why the world hates you. Remember what I told you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. Hate, rejection, persecution. See, no room shouts all these realities to me in a dramatic, memorable way. So no room requires us to ask of ourselves, what kind of a life do I think I'm called to? No room requires us to ask ourselves, what kind of life do I think I'm entitled to? And how will you answer? How will I answer the one who was born in the stable and laid in a manger? The one who said foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. The one who had no deathbed, only a death cross. The one who had no tomb in which to be buried. What are we going to say to him? I hesitate to give this illustration because it sounds judgmental. And I do not mean it to be judgmental. I don't know any of the circumstances about it. But what I saw jarred me. Because in my mind is rolling around, no room and manger and stable. That's just the place that I've been. Anyway, on Friday, I pulled up on Calhoun Street behind a beautiful, shiny, bright yellow Corvette. Beautiful. It bore a specialized license plate that read G-O-D-S-G-F-T. God's gift. God's gift. Now, maybe it was God's gift. Maybe the person won it in the lottery, but I don't know. But wait a minute, lottery and God. No, 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 no. Maybe the owner knows that every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of heavenly lights and he's just trying to give glory to God for what he has given to him. I don't know about all that. All I'm saying, it wasn't a far jump for me to begin to think about American Christianity and what we have and what we might believe we're entitled to and how it is that we use the resources that God has entrusted to us. And I wonder if our decisions about how we live our life and how we use our resources would change if constantly before our face was the face of one for whom there was no room and therefore had to be born in a stable and laid in a manger. You know, when God created Adam and Eve, he put them in a garden so beautiful and so perfect that it was a delight to all of their senses, everything they saw and heard and tasted and touched, all of it was beautiful and perfect beyond anything that we can imagine. But the perfection of the place and the relationship with God, as beautiful and wonderful and glorious as it all was, it wasn't enough for them. They wanted more, Adam and Eve did. And so they sinned to get it. So here comes Jesus, the second Adam, who came to restore all things. And he came in quite a different way, not in a beautiful garden. He came in the least place, the stable, in the least place, the inn. In the least place, Bethlehem. The least place, and the least place, and the least place. See, in our lives, we seek the beauty and the pleasures of the garden. 
We seek for things to be a joy to all of our senses and a delight to them, though they did not satisfy. That's why Jesus did not seek them. What will satisfy us? What will satisfy us? Christ. When we have Him in our life, our life setting doesn't matter so much, does it? What does it mean to have the one for whom there was no room? You know, Jesus said to a a large crowd, large crowds of people, Scripture says, were following Him. And He said to them, more tough words, If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now, that doesn't mean literally hate them. It's just a a place of priority. Christ is first above everything else. And whoever does not carry their cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Won't you first sit down and estimate the cost to see if you have enough money to complete it? Or suppose a king's about to go to war against another king. Won't he first sit down and consider whether he's able with 10,000 men to oppose the one coming against him with 20,000? In the same way, those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be my disciples. And so Jesus, the one for whom there was no room, tells us, count the cost of following me. My wife often has wonderful insights. Wonderful insights. And sometimes those insights are very quotable. Except the insults that are about my life and they're not repeatable in public. (laughs) Really, they're not repeatable in public. She came up with a great one at the dinner table on Monday night. We had guests over. During our conversation, she said, counting the cost is not the same as paying the price. Isn't that good? It's true. Counting the cost is not the same as paying the price. See, Jesus counted the cost before he left heaven. He knew what his mission was. He knew what would be required of him to complete that mission, but he signed off on the mission anyway. He signed that covenant with the Father. I'll go there. I'll do that. And here is the first payment. The first payment on what it cost him. No room, stable, manger. The last and final payment, of course, being the cross. From where he proclaimed before he died there, Tetelestai paid in full. So before you say, I will follow you, Jesus, remember that there was no room for the one you follow. Are you okay if there is no room for you? Are you? There was rejection for the one you follow. Are you okay? Are you okay when you're rejected? What are you willing to give up or do without for the sake of the gospel? You know, maybe that's another message here in no room, no home, no place for the one who is only passing through. See, the more you have, the more you accumulate, the more difficult it is to travel. And some of you are about to experience that last this coming week. Do you know what you're going to do? You're going to pack the minivan full, as full as you can get it, and then you're going to slam the, the, the hatch of the minivan, and then you're going to climb up to the cartel carrier on top of your minivan, and you're going to fill that full, and you're going to smash the lid down on that, just so you can travel with all the things that you need to survive Christmas vacation. Am I, am I telling the truth? Yes, I speak from experience. This is what's going to happen to you all and all the stuff that you have. Since the time of David, travelers had stopped in this inn on their way to Egypt or on their way to Jerusalem. And so this world is just a stop. 
It's just a stop for us on our way to our destination. That's what Hebrews chapter 11 talks about. Abraham says he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents as did Isaac and Jacob who were heirs with him of the same promise for he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. All these people died still believing what God had promised them. They did not receive what was promised but they saw it at a distance and welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners and nomads here on earth. No room, no worries. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. But then maybe I'm overthinking this whole situation. Y'all pay me to overthink. <laughs> it's kind of fun. Maybe the no room in the end is simply a call to each of us to self examination. A call to stop looking at the splinter in someone else's eye and deal with the log in our own eye. To stop shaking that disgusted, judgmental finger at all those awful people in Jerusalem who made no room for Jesus. How much room do we make for him? You know, we wear a lot of hats. You know, some of mine are husband, father, neighbor, friend, pastor, son, nephew, cousin, colleague, the list goes on. You wear as many Hats. What place does Jesus have in all of those relationships in your life? Now, he's got a high place here, doesn't he? Because we're in church. (laughs) So Jesus is important to us here. What about those relationships outside of this place? What's Jesus' place among your activities and your interests? You know, we make room for what we want in our lives. We make room for what we want. And we make room for our passions. Oh, my passion. What are our passions? We make room for whatever those things are. We make room to achieve our goals, whether they're God-centered goals or not. We definitely make room for ourselves, And you know what else? We make room for our sin. And just to put a very sharp point on it, when we do that, we're actually making room for Satan, right? We make room for that sin that we enjoy so much. But how much room do we make for Christ? Colossians 1.18 says he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. That's when Christ is fully formed in us, when he has first place in everything. Or that he might be preeminent in one translation. Or that in everything he might have the supremacy. That's where Christ is. That's his place when we make room for him. 1989 Supreme Court case. County of Allegheny versus American Civil Liberties Union. And it dealt with publicly sponsored nativity scenes. An example of which is a nativity scene erected and maintained by city officials on public property. Now the key to the constitutionality of publicly sponsored nativity scenes is that they must also have a secular symbol of Christmas as well. The proximity of that symbol is also important. It's got to be in the parameter of view of the nativity scene. And so it's okay to have a nativity scene with Mary and Joseph as long as maybe Santa Claus is looking over the manger as well. Or if his reindeer are parked right outside the stable. Or there's a Christmas tree. That makes it constitutional. And so shared space. Shared space seems to be the best our country can do for Jesus. Shared space seems to be the best that some of us can do in our lives. But when Christ is formed in us, 
He will in all things have the preeminence. He will have the supremacy. He will have the first place, a spot that he does not share with anyone or anything else. And so when we ponder no room and what message God may be speaking to us through it, we should be reminded very, very much about the kind of life to which the Lord calls each of us and what that life is to look like. When we expect and work for and compromise for acceptance with others, when Jesus promises rejection, when we expect and work for and compromise for peace with a world that rejects Christ, when what we're promised is persecution, when we expect to have and when we work and compromise to have a place in this world, when for Jesus there was no room, nothing except a manger and a stable, When we settle in in our lives here on earth and put the padding all around us so that we're really, really comfortable. When you and I should live like we're leaving, like this world is not our home, like we're just passing through, as was Jesus when he was born in this traveler's stopover. Yeah, no room should have a transformative effect on our lives as believers. It should cause us to make room for Christ and know that we will be blessed when we do so. I'm going to conclude with this. On one occasion in the Old Testament, King David needed a place for the Ark of the Covenant. You know, the Ark belonged in the tabernacle, in the Holy of Holies, holy item. David needed a place for it. And so he sent it to the home of Obed-Edom. And for three months, the Ark of the Covenant was in the home of Obed-Edom. And the Lord blessed him and his entire household. Now, King David was told, The Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of the Lord. So David went to bring the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. See, I think it's easy for us to fear the the no-room life to which we're called because we doubt the goodness and the grace of God of God. You know, I wonder what blessing would have come to the home that was willing to open its doors to Mary and Joseph. What blessing would have been on that home, the entire household, to have welcomed the Savior of the world into its walls. There's blessing where Jesus is. So you and I don't have to be afraid of no room. We're afraid of it, aren't we? All those passages I've read. But without doubt, there's tremendous blessing for the heart and for the life that makes room for Jesus and gives him the supremacy in all things. So you and I don't need to be afraid to make room for Jesus. We don't have to be afraid of the no room life to which we are called. All we need to do is to make room and God will take care of the rest. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we know that it's true that so many things in each of our lives uh, compete for our attention. They compete for our affections. They compete for and actually dominate 
our time. Father, so much so that we get to the end of a day, we get to the end of a week, and we realize, oh, Lord, I didn't make much room for you. I don't know what it is, but there's something in us that enables us to compartmentalize you, to give you your own little space, to let you out, maybe on Sunday morning, maybe a little more often than that. But Lord, we know that when you are fully formed in us, when we are not spiritual embryos or spiritual infants, but when you are fully formed in us, Lord, you will have the supremacy, the preeminence, the first place in all things. So whatever it is, Lord, to which we're called, our jobs, our activities, our recreations, you're there in our heart and our mind. You're taking first place in our relationships as we talk with others, family, friends, neighbors, coworkers. Lord, you're there, first place in our thoughts and in our hearts. Father, if it's not so in our lives, and we know it isn't too often, I pray that your spirit would be at work in us, that we would make room in our hearts for you, Lord Jesus, that we would turn our hearts over to you and say, fill them completely, fill them fully. Do this for us, we pray, because we can't do it for ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.